We're not trying to cheerlead them into liking it. I do want to teach them into doing it well and getting better. And then the side result is almost all the time, it'll become one of their more favorite subjects. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us on our 400th podcast. And every 100 episodes, we've tried to do something big and different. And I came up with this idea where we have a live call-in show. So here we are doing an Ask Andrew Anything. I have the questions, but I generally don't let you look at the questions ahead of time. But we've asked this time our listeners to ask these questions. I think what we're going to have you do, and and let me just let me just start by saying we have about four hundred people that are supposed to be here joining us today. Four hundred in honor of our four hundredth episode. So this this episode might go a little bit longer than our normal twenty to thirty minutes. It's likely my walking time. So I guess we're ready to start. Okay, so our very first question comes from Anna. So Anna, go ahead and ask Andrew your question. Everybody has a COVID story, good and bad, that happened to their family lives, their work lives. How did changes that came about due to COVID-19 change the way you guys did business? And did you have an avalanche of new homeschoolers find your teaching writing program? And how did you make adaptions to that? Thanks for letting me ask. We did have an avalanche of business. I think when the dust settled, 2020, we were up 30-some percent year-to-date, and it stretched us almost to the breaking point. We had to find people. We needed more space. Everything was back-ordered from everybody. Uh, We had a lot of people that wanted their stuff now or yesterday, and we were weeks, months out. But there was a certain willingness for people to be, I think, understanding Mm -hmm. of the circumstances. So that's good. Certainly a lot of people came into homeschooling. We were wondering if after the COVID dust settled, we would lose that and actually have a, a down year. But we have not. We've had up years, not that dramatically or painfully so. But growth has been continual. I think one of the biggest changes is we've seen just everywhere in the country and maybe even in other countries, alternative education situations sprouting up, cottage schools, pod schooling, hybrid schooling. You know, everybody had moved to an online format. So this idea that now you have to go to school five days a week and sit in a classroom, that whole paradigm was kind of busted for a lot of people. So that was kind of exciting. Of course, you know, a lot of children didn't necessarily do well being Mm -hmm. entirely cut off from 
teachers and friends and external activities. But I think overall, at least for the people we've interfaced mm -hmm. with, it was a net good, a net gain. For me personally, it was it was a really good year because I didn't travel anywhere for 16 months, I think. I mean, I did not get on a plane for 16 months. I had not done that for over 20 years. So it was a very different lifestyle, and that resulted in some very good personal and lifestyle changes for me and I think for some other people. Yeah, yeah. But it is interesting to look back and see the legacy that the pandemic period mm -hmm. created. And I think, should we face another situation like that in the mm -hmm. future for some reason, everyone will be a little bit more aware of what they're going into and what to expect and how to deal with that kind of idea of a, a lockdown. We, we got off pretty easy here well, in Oklahoma. We, <laughs> in Oklahoma, we get off pretty easily. Yeah. But one thing that we providentially had ready and of course, no one knew that this was coming down the pike. We had our Structure and Style for Students courses yeah. ready streaming. That year. Yeah. That year. We released it in November and COVID hit the pandemic. Everything got locked down in March. So that was awesome. That was truly providential. And then a lot of these students went back to school. And since then, one of the fastest growing areas at IEW is our schools division. More and more students came back to school, I think, perhaps, and said, hey, I know how to write because I did this thing with this tiny little company and we're seeing a tremendous amount of growth. Yeah. So we're excited. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. This is from Hope. Yes. Hi there. Hi, Hope. So, Andrew, thank you for the many years of the products and great products. Many have questions about starting writing. I have a high school student who's getting close to finishing your high school offerings. What are the most important points for my child to remember as they maybe go to college or do post high school professional work in regard to writing? Thank you. And we love the jokes. I like that question because the answer is very counterintuitive. I always tell kids when they're headed off to college or university, don't try to write well. Don't try to do what you think is good. Mm. Try to figure out what the teacher thinks is good and do that. Because the whole game of being in school is make teachers happy. Right. And fortunately, students who grew up doing structure and style for some or many mm. years have a toolbox of models and techniques and methods and approaches and devices that they can then pick and choose from to meet the needs of the audience for whom they are writing. Yep. The same thing kind of goes in a workplace situation. You know, who are you writing for? You're not writing for a college teacher who's going to kind of tell you what they want. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit harder. You have to kind of intuit what's the style. So, you know, if you're writing emails to someone, look at how they wrote an email to you. And if their email was in complete sentences and paragraphs and contained a lot of detail and sounded fairly literary, you would like to respond in a similar way. If their email was very short, bullet point, here's what you need to know, you would respond in a similar way. So that idea of reflecting what you receive is really the best way to know 
how to use the skills that you've acquired over time. And then at some point, you leave college and you go get a different job, or maybe you become self-employed, start mm -hmm. a business, or get into ministry or whatever. You can sort of start to create your own way of doing things. But don't do that prematurely, because the job you have first out of high school is wrestle your skills into a form that makes the people you're accountable to happy with what you've written. Right, right. And if you want to write a book on the side, then you can go and do whatever you want. Right. And Hope, I would just really encourage you to get some of our portable walls to send with your college students. Our grammar on the go mm -hmm. has all those grammar rules and a nice little trifold. Certainly the portable wall for students of structural yeah, style. Yeah. There's all your dress up. Well, yeah, all the techniques. It is the master checklist. It is the yeah. master checklist for and, all the different styles. And a lot of people have said their student just went off to the mm. University of Law with a portable wall. Yeah. So that's the only thing they yeah. took, and yet they use it every day. Yeah. They refer to it all yeah. the time. So yeah. it is a good artifact of all the suffering that happened during the many years of it's true. going through structure and style books and whatnot. So I'm going to plug a brand new product that's coming out. Is that your job? That is my job. <laughs> it is my job. So some of you may have heard that we came out with a new course called Introduction to Public Speaking. This is the first of a few standalone courses for junior high and high school students. The new one that's coming out, so new that I can't show you the cover yet. It's still a red cover. This is in a draft version. It's called University Ready Writing, and it will be a notebook too. It's a video course Andrew is teaching for 12 weeks to your college students, things like how to conduct research and write an annotated bibliography, write a reflection essay, and you know, our old favorites, the triac and Precy. My favorite thing in here is the advanced note-taking idea, yes. kind of like keyword outlines on steroids. Yes. That's phenomenally useful. Don't like let that, that scare you. It's so cool. The students who watch this course learn how to take notes for their college classes. Anyway, this is called University Ready Writing. This will be available in January. The second of a few more that we have planned for students that are new to IEW or students that have done IEW for years. It's kind of a standalone course. Yeah, we're excited about University Ready Writing. So hope you probably won't need that for your college-bound student. Maybe you will. Maybe you will. Hey, Karen. Hi, how are you guys doing? Great. Good. Good. So do you have any tips for older students to transfer their note-taking and outlining skills mm -hmm. to writing prompts during college and dual enrollment classes? And although it seems like these skills would be natural at this point, sometimes there's this thing that happens where students can't quite transfer all of these skills to these unexpected and new prompts. Certainly when we're talking about prompts at a college level, mm -hmm. they are probably assuming a certain general knowledge combined with what do you think about that? So you do have to have the general knowledge and that's what you've got in your brain to start with. Really making an outline from a prompt is essentially what we try to demonstrate and mm -hmm. teach in all of our Unit 7 lessons. Mm -hmm. yep. And I tell the kids it's taking notes from your brain. Mm -hmm. So 
let's say that you read a prompt and you start having thoughts about how you might answer that. You could just start typing sentences, and what you would end up with is a large flow of probably very difficult to reorganize mm -hmm. prose. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you had a thought and you wrote down three key words, and then you had the next thought and you wrote down three key words, and you did that by essentially taking notes from what you are starting to think in relation to the prompt, then once you've done that preliminary activity, you can then look at the thoughts you have and start to filter them and say, okay, which one is a good starting thought, which should come right after that, which maybe doesn't fit well into this sequence or could be taken out. I was hearing a podcast with Jordan Peterson recently, and someone said that he had said that writing is the best way to practice thinking. And he said this in different ways at different times. And he said, yes, it certainly is because writing is distilled thinking. And that is where you have a chance to edit. And the most important thing to edit is to get rid of the stuff that isn't really going to support mm -hmm. what you're trying to communicate. And we do, you know, some of us more than others, but we all do tend to think very globally and kind of simultaneously, and that's the way our brain works. We get idea from here and here and here and there. We have all these ideas, and to just start writing sentences and then edit that is going to be a lot harder than taking notes from all those things, seeing it on a piece of paper or even a whiteboard. Mm -hmm. I know adults who use whiteboards to take <laughs> notes. And then distilling and refining that into prose that is going to require much less time and sweat in the final editing process. So that's why I'm trying to encourage students to maintain that discipline of using your outlines, even when you think you know what you're going to say. Mm -hmm. Because if you do that, separate the complexity of what to write and then how to organize and present that, it always comes out better on the other side. Yeah, love the idea of whiteboards. Well, the daughter in question actually fills two whiteboards for literary analyses. I love it. Perfect, yeah. perfect. I have five whiteboards in my office, <laughs> it is true. <laughs> and lots and lots of sticky notes. I love sticky notes. Okay, our next question. All right, Elise, let's hear your question. Have you ever thought about writing a book, nonfiction or fiction? And if so, what would your book be about? Well, I did teach a group of kids several years ago novel writing using a kind of program I wanted to experiment with and see how I liked it. And I started my novel, but I just couldn't keep up with it. But it started like this. It's an older guy who's diagnosed with prostate cancer. Oh. He goes into a church uh -huh. and he sits to kind of process this. Yeah information and he sees blood dripping oh, from the crucifix oh, from dear. the wounds of christ he's not religious okay and so this at first he can't believe he's really seeing it but then he actually touches it and it transforms his life and then he dies in the end <laughs> that was the book i was thinking i might i got the first couple chapters and i thought oh, that's pretty good but i'm just not motivated i do not like writing Does fiction not like to write i am planning to write some 
short books. I did write a book, but it took 20 years. That is the one. How did this come about? We were doing a convention giveaway. Yeah. And I said, why don't we make a little book with some of the best articles that I wrote yeah. over the past decades? Yeah. And they ended up choosing, I think, every article well, that I wrote or close good. to it. And so it's a good bathroom book because they're all very short. <laughs> I don't write anything over about a thousand words generally. Well, your longest article in here is called however perfectly. perfectly that's the longest one yeah the first one but anyway it's in reverse order so it goes from the most recent things that i've written to the oldest things that i've written we have little illustrations yeah. that were done by hannah who yeah. just got her first book published hannah pennington yeah. yeah yeah you also get this book free if you're a premium member of our website is that yes correct? that's right so yeah. premium members there's a coupon in your premium membership to get this book free. Yeah. And at the speed that I produce this book, then probably in 20 years, I can create another 300-page yes. book. <laughs> yes. Joy Sleep says she loved that book. Oh, Did you I'm so glad. Okay. So this question, I think, if you are ready, Mandy, we are ready to hear your question. Hi, Andrew and Julie. I'm so glad I get to ask my question. I've been listening to your podcast for a few years already. Great. So my question is, how will AI impact the future of flighting instruction? Such a great question. We have been asking ourselves this question probably for about a year now. And I think the more and more we learn about what AI is capable of, <laughs> the more Andrew is ready to answer it. <laughs> Well, you could try an experiment and just ask ChatGPT that very question mm -hmm. and see what they say. So from a business perspective, it's kind of as though we are thinking it will either totally increase demand for what we do mm -hmm. or it will kill us. I think we're going to see the former rather than the latter because like anything that doesn't have a soul, mm -hmm. it's yeah going to be capable of doing extraordinary things that a human brain is not necessarily capable of, especially in terms of wrangling large amounts of research into condensed information and presenting that in a fully grammatically correct way. And let me just give an example of that. Is that okay? Sure. We are working with an app developer. He's actually working on two apps for us. That's a little bit of a secret. We're going to reveal that in 2024. I'm going to do a podcast about it then, no doubt. But he is using AI to help him with programming. Right. But he checks but, but it that, to make sure it's going to work. Yeah, but that's not her question, which is about writing, writing. instructions. Yes, yes. So for a long time, since before there was, AI was even a thing, mm -hmm. I would talk to parents about the relationship between you or your children and a machine. What do you want that relationship to be? Because you have basically two choices. It tells you what to do, or you tell it what to do. Right. So it's going to be the same. We are going to either control the technology and direct its use in our lives, or we will simply be at the effect of it. I fear that you know the prophecy and this wasn't my prophecy, this was Elon Musk's prophecy. Oh. <laughs> you know, whoever controls AI will control people. Mm -hmm. So we are going to need to teach reading even more carefully mm -hmm. in terms of the critical aspect. 
And that, of course, involves asking the right questions. And that gets us back to what do we do that's different? What do we do that's different than what an AI teacher could do? And that is connect with the soul of the student mm -hmm. in a way that a machine could never do. And I believe our video courses do that very effectively. I don't think AI could produce our structure and style for students material right. and get the same result, right. even if it was a much better looking <laughs> hologram of me. But in our methodology, as all of you know, we really stress building the skill of asking good questions. And I heard an interesting term recently, I hadn't heard this before, that the future is going to require or already is requiring a job called prompt engineer. Oh, interesting. Yep. What is a prompt engineer? Well, one would assume it's someone who writes prompts. What are prompts? Questions. So what would a prompt engineer do? He would have all of the tools to be able to construct the best possible questions for the artificial intelligence to respond to. Yep. And like anything, it's you know garbage in, garbage out. Ask a bad question, you get a useless answer. Ask a very good question, you might get a very good answer. I was playing with this the other day and I asked ChatGPT, what is the best way to teach writing to children? Mm -hmm. And it was a good answer. It was 12 things, and I would say 10 of those are very specifically things that we have promoted mm. and right. incorporated in all that we do. Do you still have that answer? Can we post that in the show notes? I can ask again. Okay. <laughs> Sounds great. Might get a different answer. You well, never know. you know, I know that you had a very carefully constructed question. Yeah. Prompt. The challenge, I think, for teachers is going to be how do we know these kids wrote this? Yeah. And so yeah. I am hearing a lot of people at all different levels, from middle school all the way through university level, that they are requiring a lot more mm -hmm. in class yep. writing assignments. And that's a bit of a sacrifice of time for a teacher to make. But when you really have no way to know if a kid actually wrote something or not, then the only way is to babysit them while they actually try to write something and see if they can do it. So I think that would be a positive trend, more in-class writing in Agreed. college and university as to whether writing the way we think of it currently will still be an important skill 10 years from now, that's anybody's guess. But I would guess, yes. Yeah, we have another question this time from Amy. Hi there. Hi. Hi. So I began teaching structure and style level 1C for the first time to classes of high school students just last month. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. What is the most important piece of advice or encouragement you have for someone who is brand new to all of this? Well, we could go a couple different directions with this. One suggestion that I have, which would make it a little harder for you in terms of time, but it would make you way better in terms of confidence, and that is to do some, I wouldn't expect you would do all, but try to do some of the assignments, maybe at least one from each unit, maybe the first new one in each unit, before you give the assignment to the students. 
Because if you do that, if you just wrestle with it, make the outline, write it out, do the checklist, do it just like you're wanting them to do it, when you go and present this to them, you will be able to anticipate some of the challenges or problems or objections or frustrations that they may have when they are doing it on their own. So if you can do that, I think you will find that you've invested in yourself and that's going to pay off not just for this year and the rest of the school year, but for the rest of your teaching career. Mm -hmm. Yep. That would be the first one. The second thing is I would encourage you to break free of the idea that everybody has to absolutely be doing the same thing in terms of the checklist, especially it's okay to customize the checklist mm -hmm. for students in the group. And that didn't come across on the video particularly because we didn't want to confuse anybody. But there were kids that we had to take them aside and say, look, don't worry about doing all five of these things in each paragraph. Just do these three in each paragraph. And you tell me when this has become easy, and then we'll add the next thing. So feel free to cross things off that checklist or use the checklist generator if you are a premium member on the website yeah. and individualize the level of challenge of the checklist for each of the students that maybe needs that. And you could go the other way too. You may have a hotshot kid who's bored because they already knew everything and you can you know, look ahead and grab a technique out of you know, the advanced decorations and triples and mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. The third thing I would mention is high school students in particular seem to not be particularly willing to tell you <laughs> when they don't understand something, even a word. And it's easy when you're dealing with older kids. They can sit there and make themselves look very smart and know everything, and they wouldn't want to kind of give away the fact that they were a little confused, but then they go off to do it. They come back and you think they just didn't get it. Mm -hmm. So don't make assumptions that everyone understands everything that you're saying. Ask a lot of questions to kind of check on that, get them to tell things back to you, even the definitions of words, because I have very often found that sometimes kids will think they know what a word means and then the way they use it, clearly they didn't. And okay, well, that's fine. That's just a part of growing up and gaining your language skills. But in that age group, little kids are a lot happier to look confused or to even tell you, I don't understand. Older kids, oftentimes a little bit of self-conscious social pride element will keep them from communicating their need in that same way. So those would be the three things. Do the assignment yourself as best you can, whenever you can. Take the time. It's worth it. Customize the checklist for students in the group and don't assume that anyone knows what you assume they would have known from just telling them one time. Great advice. Okay, we have Amanda. Hi, Andrew. Total fangirl moments. In a group <laughs> setting, like classical conversations, how do I encourage moms who are likely overwhelmed with homeschooling to stick with it, to not check out, and to stay plugged in for maximum results with IEW? Great it's a good question, question and it is very easy to be overwhelmed, especially in a CC or co-op situation where there's a lot of things. I do think classical conversations in general, the leadership has been good about trying to 
say, no, you the mom, you're in charge, right. you regulate, you self-determine. If you don't want to do this part of the CC, it's okay. You don't have to do everything. The problem is, you know, the new moms, they want to do everything. But you can echo that message and say, don't get to a point where you're overwhelmed and doing none of it well. It would be better to just not do a couple pieces of the whole program and do what you can do and do that better. In terms of sticking with it, I think one of the best testimonials mm -hmm. you can have is the older kids. Mm -hmm. We see that a lot when yes. we have you know, an older child who is maybe working in a booth with a parent at a convention or something, and then a new parent comes along and, oh, we're just into it and it's hard. And then, you know, the older student is demonstrating the fruit of that effort in his life, in their family earlier on. So I think, you know, having a good community where the moms who've been at it for two or three or four or more years are aware that some of these newer moms are feeling a little overwhelmed and just, you know, coming alongside yeah. and reassuring, you know, you get through it, yep. you get and through it. Certainly, there are some people who are going to just hang on to being stressed about stuff because that's their habit, that's the way they operate, and you can't necessarily do anything about that. But I do think that there are some other factors outside of pedagogy and curriculum that contribute to stress in homeschooling. And if I can plug it, we did some podcasts unlike light, air, and food, and exercise. Yes, we did. We did do that. Okay, so we'll so put, we'll a put link some links. So I think a lot of moms are stressed because they're not aware of the importance of light and circadian rhythm. First thing in the morning, go look at the sun. They are not aware of the importance of breath and breathing and air quality. Yep. Most people are woefully unaware of the effect of food mm -hmm. on stress. Mm -hmm and exercise, we tend to put homeschooling, that's the big thing we gotta think about. But some of these other environmental factors, and then the last one would be reducing endocrine disruptors in the system, you know, in the environment, get toxins out of the home. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure you can do anything about this, but I do think it's very good for everyone to be aware that Many of the things causing stress in your life are not connected with the homeschooling per se, the curriculum, the teaching method, etc. They actually are more connected with lifestyle factors. Andrew, I was just at a convention in California. Okay. Just got home yesterday, but the booth right next door to us was all about stress relief and they actually had a masseuse there you know, to give. You went to a convention with a masseuse next door? How yeah. do I get a gig I like know, this? I know, I know. But here's the thing that was so shocking to me. She had candy bars oh. in her booth. I'm like, there's a disconnect there. So yes, I think the home environment, you know, I was thinking as, as you were asking your question, and actually even as I was coming in here thinking, you know, we, we get a lot of questions. Why do we get so many questions here at IEW? And I realized it's this. What we're doing isn't hard, it's just different. And so people have questions right. about what it is we do and why 
you know, how to do it, but it's not hard. It's just different. And so maybe that's what you just need to say to your mom. You know, homeschooling isn't, doesn't have to be hard. It's just different. Well, and the good news is you have a lot of control yeah. over all aspects of your schedule yeah. Yeah. and your environment. So it may be stressful, but I don't think it would be as stressful for the child in particular, having to conform to yep. someone else's schedule and someone else's environment. Yep. I mean, just the food that most schools serve is <laughs> probably enough to reduce brain function in almost everyone who eats it. Yeah. So if I were to write a book, it would be something like how to reduce stress at homeschooling by environmental factors. Environmental. We sh we sh we'll just have to do another podcast yeah. on it. Yeah, we, so we do. So all of our listeners, we can do. We do. But we talked about a few things. Yeah, we and did. And we got Katie Wells. That's right. So we can link to that. Yeah, yeah. very good. Okay. And sleep. Definitely sleep. Sleep is important. Joy Sleep says we need that book. We Joy need... Sleep knows that one of the first books I ever read was Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Well, and we did a podcast on, actually, we had to break it into two of your favorite books, and one of them was Why We Sleep. Yeah. I've always valued sleep. I, <laughs> I finally I did came not around convince to it. you. This other I guy named Walker, around. the author that's of the funny. book, right? Yeah. That is funny. Okay, Liz Scott. Hello. So I'm. I'm so, I feel so nerdy, but I'm so excited to be on here. We have been with Classical Conversations for, this is our fourth year, and this is my second year tutoring in essentials. So my last year was my first year being introduced to IEW. Mm. I have a very younger student, six years old, and my question is, is it enough to begin with the IEW programs in the pre-K kindergarten stage and move through the levels gradually? Or is there additional supplements or recommendations for teaching, speaking, writing, and reading to prepare them for the IEW at the fourth, fifth grade level and above? Well, I would very much like, Liz, for you to hear my talk, Cultivating Language Arts Preschool Through High School, because I spend at least 20 to 30 minutes of that talk specifically talking about preschool yep. and primary age children. So, you know, three to five, five to eight, that zone. And I'm not sure what people are thinking of when they think of pre-K or K writing curriculum, but in my vernacular, that idiom shouldn't even exist. The things that you would do would be very natural and in response to the young children showing an interest. Mm -hmm. So foundational, listening to music, reading out loud to them, using picture books, doing a huge amount of input of language and music to sensitize the whole brain to everything, cultivating the listening, that carries right on into the speaking, and then you can get into nursery rhymes and poetry memorization, mm -hmm and learning and singing songs because that moves you into the speaking part. And for young children, that listening and speaking is way, way more important than you know the reading writing business. On the reading side, I think it's extremely important not to push a child into reading before they are showing an interest, before there's an aptitude. Because if you start to push it too early and they start to hate it, they may continue to hate it for years 
even after they have better neurological equipment to do it. So in my view, it would be way better to wait too long mm -hmm. to teach a child to read than to start too early in teaching a child to read. And with writing, you know, you're seeing then this very, very complex process of finding an idea, speaking it into existence, holding it in your memory, wrestling the technical information to record that idea in some form. And the absolute most important thing to do, and this is what ChatGPT told me, oh. right? Best way to teach writing children, focus on correct letter formation mm -hmm. and spelling okay. and understanding the basics of putting a sentence. I would look at it in that order too. So with you know a six-year-old child, writing in the sense of composition is way less valuable than copying mm -hmm. high quality language, whether it's from scripture or poetry or a fairy tale or an Aesop fable, whatever. But copying is gonna build stamina, it's gonna build confidence, it's gonna be an opportunity to practice all of that technical stuff, capitals, periods, commas, apostrophes, all that stuff that you know six-year-olds don't really understand. But by copying it again and again and again, they get a sense of it. Then when you go and explain it from a grammar and mechanics point of view, there's familiarity yep. there. Yep. So, you know, I, I would encourage parents of young children, and you can define that however you want to, but I would say up through probably eight years old, that in any given day, the most important things to do would be reading aloud and copy work. Yep. And don't worry about creativity. That comes as a result of basic skills. And then once you get into essentials, you have the keyword outline, which is just one step removed from copying. Rather than copying a whole sentence, you're just copying right. three words of that sentence right. and then reconstructing the idea later on. Let me just show you this really quick, Liz. This is Adventures in Writing. This is like the step below what you're getting in Essentials. And so if you want to start your kiddo a year early with something that's super easy, easy paced, not super easy, it's an easy paced. Well, but it's still at a grade three, four reading level. It is, but yeah. the, four, the four Essentials is starting a little bit older. Right. So this would be an easier one than what you're using at Essentials. And we also have Bible heroes yeah. and people and places books. in our community. So Thank you, Liz, for your great question. Hi. Hi, Gwendolyn. Oh, and friend. Hi, friend. Oh, a couple friends. Hi. Oh, look at that. Hey, okay. kids. Who's there with you? This is my daughter, Ruby. My Hi, Ruby. Desi. We're loving your curriculum so far. And great. Ruby is wondering, Mr. Pudova, what is your favorite fable? Oh, my favorite fable. I That's like saying, what's your favorite, you know. Grandchild? Not quite. <laughs> Not quite. I'll just say, I think it's the fox and the crow. Because I've taught that fable so many times to so many different people. And I'm always amazed at the insights that people have. And so I don't know if it's my favorite fable because it's the best of all the fables. I doubt it. I think it's my favorite fable because I'm so intimately familiar with it and I have so many good experiences of hearing how people can use that fable. My actual favorite fable for changing characters and setting is The Boy Who Cried Wolf. 
because that way you can have a girl and a goat herd in Africa cry lion or a wolf who cried boy, or you can put it in the in a war and you can have the Yankee sentry who called rebel attack. And you, you know, you can do a lot with that particular fable in terms of changing characters and setting and just playing with it and using the story line, using the plot, but making up something really kind of fun and original on your own. So those would be the top two, I guess. What's your favorite fable, Ruby? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> Do you guys want to hear Mr. Poudois tell you a joke? Okay, Ruby, I'm sorry. All right. I, Ruby, I didn't hear what your older brother's name is. What's his name? It's Desi. Okay, okay. this one's for you. This, this is a, this this is is a, a subtle one. joke, but there's a woodcutter out in the woods chopping wood, and he's about to cut down a tree, and the tree shouts, Stop, stop! Don't chop me! I'm a talking tree! And the woodcutter says, Yes, and you will dialogue. Did you get it? You can explain that later. <laughs> it's a pretty sophisticated joke. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bless you guys. Bye bye. Oh, we have another question. Okay, let's hear your question. Hi, we've used IEW materials for 10 years, and I can confidently say that IEW has been the resource that's provided the most tools to positively and dramatically shape our homeschool. I've been listening to the podcast since it's been in the single digits. Wow. Andrew and Julie, what has been the most rewarding part for you throughout the growth of the IEW business and ministry? No, you got to go first. I'm getting teary-eyed. Oh. <laughs> it's a great question. The most? Well, that's a tough one. No, no, no. It has to be has the superlative. To be the most. You know, the most important and why. For me and the growth of this business, the most rewarding thing has been to see how God has brought us, the people that have come to work with us here, that have joined our team in many different capacities, have brought their genius to what we've been trying to do. And while it would be very easy to say, aren't we happy about all the great results and testimonials and numbers and happy customers and all that, for me personally, it's the really indescribable joy I have of working with the people that, and every one of them, God brought directly to us. We have never advertised for anybody to work for us. It's kind of like a hole opens up, and then we say, okay, Lord, we are ready for who you want to send, when you want to send them, and that to me, has been the most joyous and satisfying part of this couple decades yeah. together. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add to that is just extending that net to our family, to you who've been listening to us on the podcast since single digits, but so many, so many people who have been impacted by the work here. It's just yeah. been phenomenal. So the, the other great thing is that when you're serving people and you have a dialogue going on, mm -hmm. not the dead tree kind, but the actual, <laughs> you know, people ask questions and mm -hmm. then we work on solutions to those yeah. answers. So we end up answering questions we didn't have, yeah. but we are grateful for everyone who has brought that. So just the synergy between our customer and the mostly parents and teachers and kids that we know helping us 
learn what we're doing even better. Yep. And it just kind of keeps getting better. It's yep. like a, a good relationship over a long period yep. of time. There's little struggles now and then, but when you stick with it and work through the bumps, the satisfaction of the long-term growth together is just, it's the best thing there is. I tell young people too, and I saw you had a, a teenager there, very handsome young man in the back. I always tell young people, when you go and start working, you know, you get a job, where are you going to go? A lot of homeschoolers go to Chick-fil-A for some reason I still don't understand. But anyway, they go to Chick-fil-A. I always talk to young people and say, stay in that job yeah. as long as you are growing, as long as you're learning and growing as a person. And when that job is no longer able to meet your, I don't know, growth requirements, your need to grow intellectually, spiritually, physically, emotionally, experientially, then don't do it anymore. Go to a different job. You can always find a way to make money. The question is, can you do that and grow as a person at the same time? So that's advice I think a lot of young people would benefit from hearing. So yeah, okay, go to McDonald's, go to chick. My first job was McDonald's. What was your first job, Albertson? No, I no? was a lifeguard at the YMCA. Okay, but it only took me six weeks to say, there has to be a more fulfilling way to make money than running this shake machine four hours a day, four days a week or whatever. You know, I got to a pet store and then I went to working a game store, war game store, and then I started my own little business. And so, you know, the various jobs I had when young, I look back on them and I think I learned a lot. I learned from that person, I learned from that circumstance, that environment. And I think naturally when we stop learning, we start to dislike the environment of the job and then move on. Doesn't mean it wasn't a good thing, it just means you've grown past it. Andrew, do you remember what you said to me when you first hired me? I can't really afford you? <laughs> no, you didn't say that. He said to me, we'll both know when it's time for you to move on. And I think that's what he was talking about, but I'm still yeah. learning and growing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and now I, I, I renege on that right now. You, you can't leave. <laughs> well, thank you, boss. <laughs> thank you, that was such a great question, Christy. Okay, Becky, let's hear your question. Hey. Oh, you're a familiar face from long ago, Becky. You haven't aged a day since I met you, however many years. I actually haven't. I have not been aging at all. Thank you for taking my question. My kids cover a broad range of ages. They go from three to 19. So I get to kind of see some of these things that we do pan out over the years. And I'm often thinking about the longevity of the things that we choose to do in our homeschool curriculum. So my question is, what can you tell us about the feedback that you've received from college students or their parents who used IEW in elementary, middle school, and or high school, just if they did all three of those, or even just if they managed to get just a couple years in? What sort of feedback have you gotten? I would say that's the most common testimonial letter that we get. And it basically says, we did IEW for X number of years. Then my son went to take a class at the college, or he started dual enrollment, or he went away to school, and he found writing to be much, much easier than all of his peers. One kind of dangerous story is this guy helped his roommate's girlfriend write a paper. 
And the result was he stole the girlfriend. <laughs> Not a reason. So but we also hear that the college professor will yes. say, this where, is the best paper I've ever read. Yeah. And where did you learn to Where write did it? you learn to do this? Right, and, right. and the kids will usually say something like, I don't know, my mom taught me. <laughs> but sometimes they'll say, oh, we used IEW. And I actually had a professor at a college who came up to me at a convention very specifically and said, okay, what do you do? Because all the kids that come to me who did IEW write way better than the rest of everyone. And this is a small liberal arts college with a high percentage of kids from the homeschool world to begin with. But he finally pinned it and said, okay, what is it? What are you doing that's making this difference that I have been seeing for these years? And I think, you know, it's a combination of the technical skills of separating complexity, make keyword outlines and write from that instead of just writing whatever you first think. It's the technical skills of knowing what stylistic techniques are available. And then, you know, once you finish, you kind of graduate from the checklist and then you would use or not use the stylistic techniques as it fits the content, the assignment, the purpose of the writing. But possibly even deeper than that is just this confidence yeah. that kids have. Like, I know how to do this. And then they go into a class and someone says, write a thing. And their immediate reaction is, okay, I know how to do this. And then they use the tools to figure out how to do what they know how to do. And it becomes kind of a natural, more organic thing. It's not like they need a lesson plan to figure out how to do that assignment. They've done enough well-designed lessons that the whole process has become rather automatic. Yeah. And the other thing we see is that kids very often, when they get into a college situation, will not just get good grades, but they will end up, as I said, helping other mm -hmm. students learn to do what they learn to do. And that, to me, is even more gratifying yeah. because it's wonderful to go off and do well, but it's also wonderful to have a skill that you can pass on and share. Yeah to others that you care about. Yeah, so send with your college student a handful of portable walls and they get a portable wall with their $100 writing lesson. <laughs> Make some money on the side. <laughs> well, Andrew, as you were describing the process, I was thinking about the checklist and the value of the checklist because it's helping the students attend to those things that they're supposed to be doing. So I would imagine that a college student who's familiar with our system knows that there are requirements, and so perhaps they read the college syllabus and actually do the assignment exactly. that's been yeah. given because they're attentive to that. I, I want to mention the recent podcast with Scott Newstock. Oh, yes, okay. And the book, How to Think Like Shakespeare. That's just launched, and then part two. But he has a chapter in his book on constraint yeah. and how the constraint of something actually engenders greater creativity. And so when you have a checklist you have to follow, or you have a poetic form that you have to follow, or you have a limit on how many you know, words or paragraphs you can use to express what you're trying to express, the constraint actually promotes the creative vitality. Whereas if you just said to someone, go do anything you want, that's not helpful from a creative point of view. So whether it's our checklist or someone else's rubric or checklist or assignment, 
if they've learned to be creative inside constraint, the way he explains in that book, that's a lifelong gift. Because wherever you go, there's going to be limits and constraints and ways you have to operate. And you will rise up. You will shine when you can be creative within the constraints that you face. Thank you so much. We have time for one more question. But Jess, before you ask your question, I just want to ask this question that we thought was going to have answered and I'm all ready for them. The question was, I heard the rumor of IEW collaborating with Hillsdale College. Could you spill the beans? We kind of already did spill the beans in one of our episodes, but now I'm going to kind of just show you this book that I showed earlier. Yeah. This is the first of six books that we're doing for their K-12 program starting in third grade. And this, so yeah. adventures so. in writing, discoveries in writing. And, and these were put together to have source texts that are connected with in some way, the history, the science, the literature, the music, things that are part of the Hillsdale K-12 curriculum yeah. map. Yeah. We said K-12 because that's our program. Yeah. Our books are very specifically grade Three, three through, through eight. eight. So yeah. we have six years of books that we're putting together. Yeah. And of course, they'll be available for, for anyone. anyone. Yeah. We did a podcast with Dr. O'Toole. Yes, we so did. So we can link to that yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. So that that's happening. So Jess, our last question comes from you. Are you ready? Yes. All right. I'm also an essentials tutor with CC. So I'm asking this question, thinking both about the three children that I homeschool, as well as the 17 that I'm tutoring in class. Wow. Big group. Big group. What would you say is the greatest predictor of success that our students will develop a love for effective writing? Well, I have in the past said, I don't think wanting students to love writing is the right goal. They may or may not love it, but you can't make them love it. That's outside your control. What you can do is you can teach it well so that they get decently good at it. And if they continue on and refine that skill through the post-essential levels or wherever they go, whatever they do, they will get better and better. And it's actually in getting better at something that you start to like it. And that's true, whether it's sports or music or cooking or writing. If you're doing it decently well and you feel like you're improving, you like doing it. And if you don't feel like you're improving, then you pretty much stop liking it if you ever did or you never begin to like it. So I would focus on let's help develop the skills and not worry whether people are liking it or not. And what you end up with is most of the kids will end up liking the thing that they get good at. And that's our job. Yep. We, we can't have a magic wand and say, you will now love to do this thing. But we can create an environment and a circumstance and a pathway where it does get better, not necessarily easier, but it gets better. And as the experience gets better, then you like it more. I came home last night and I said to my wife, I cannot believe how much I actually like lifting heavy weights. Oh. Because four years ago, I would never have wanted to do that. Under any, I avoided trying to lift heavy things. But I came home and I thought, that is so weird because it's not physically pleasant. 
got its level of stress. It's up and down. <laughs> but when you get a little bit up and you lift a weight heavier than you ever did before, that is really gratifying. Yep. As you like to say all the time, hard, hard work, work is, is immensely satisfying. Satisfying. So that, I think, is what we're doing with kids. We're not trying to cheerlead them into liking yep. it. I don't care if anybody likes it, but I do want to teach them into doing it well and getting better. And then the side result is almost all the time, it'll become one of their more favorite subjects. Yep. Yep. And I just kind of tack onto that yeah, really quickly because yeah. the, the greatest predictor and I think what you want to teach your students to do is fail successfully. They get something wrong, get up, dust yourself off, and fix it. And make it right and have a cheerful attitude about it. And the way you do that is just continue to encourage them to do that. They're able to overcome their failures and be successful. And they've got this. And I want to add on to that, that our approach with the checklist mm -hmm. and the AI grading idea, A for accepted, accomplished, or incomplete. Yeah. There's no, you know, 92% is good enough. I mean, you can do it that way. Yes. But in my ideal, if you work a piece until you have got 100% of all those things done, that's what's really satisfying. Yeah. And that's what's teaching yep. the intangibles yep. of diligence and attention to detail and sustaining attention over a longer period of time. And I think, you know, in the homeschool, particularly in the CC world, we're very suited to do it that way yep. because we don't have to operate in this artificial world of grades and percentages and transcripts and all that. Thank you, Jess. That was a really good question. <laughs> Elijah points. AI equals acceptable or oh, incomplete. I like that. Elijah. Brilliant. Yeah, I like that one. I think he's a student. I think he's a student. Yeah. Well, Andrew, this has been a delight. It's been so fun yeah. to see your names. We've never, ever done this before. And we've actually never done a video during our podcast. Thank you all for joining us. Thank God you. bless you. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Here you can also find show notes and relevant links from today's broadcast. One last thing. Would you mind going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast? This really helps other smart, caring listeners like you find us. Thanks so much.